Section seventeen of History of Egypt, Volume One by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter three. The Legendary History of Egypt, Part One. The building up and diffusion of the doctrine of the Ennead, like the formation of the land of Egypt, demanded centuries of sustained effort, centuries of which the inhabitants themselves knew neither the number nor the authentic history. When questioned as to the remote past of their race, they proclaimed themselves the most ancient of mankind, in comparison with whom all other races were but a mob of young children, and they looked upon nations which denied their pretensions with such indulgence and pity as we feel for those who doubt a well-known truth. Their forefathers had appeared upon the banks of the Nile even before the Creator had completed his work, so eager were the gods to behold their birth. No Egyptian disputed the reality of this right of the firstborn, which ennobled the whole race, but if they were asked the name of their divine father, then the harmony was broken, and each advanced the claims of a different personage. Ptah had modelled man with his own hands, Kanumu had formed him on a potter's table. Ra at his first rising, seeing the earth desert and bare, had flooded it with his rays as a flood of tears. All living things, vegetable and animal, and man himself, had sprung pell-mell from his eyes, and were scattered abroad with the light over the surface of the world. Sometimes the facts were presented under a less poetic aspect. The mud of the Nile, heated to excess by the burning sun, fermented and brought forth the various races of men and animals by spontaneous generation, having moulded itself into a thousand living forms. Then its procreative power became weakened to the verge of exhaustion. Yet on the banks of the river, in the height of the summer, smaller animals might still be found whose condition showed what had once taken place in the case of the larger kinds. Some appeared as already fully formed, and struggling to free themselves from the oppressive mud. Others, as yet imperfect, feebly stirred their heads and forefeet, while their hindquarters were completing their articulation and taking shape within the matrix of earth. It was not Ra alone whose tears were endowed with vitalizing power. All divinities, whether beneficent or malevolent, Sit as well as Osiris or Isis, could give life by weeping, and the work of their eyes, when once it had fallen upon earth, flourished and multiplied as vigorously as that which came from the eyes of Ra. The individual character of the Creator was not without bearing upon the nature of his creatures. Good was the necessary outcome of the good gods, evil of the evil ones, and herein lay the explanation of the mingling of things excellent and things execrable, which is found everywhere throughout the world. Voluntarily or involuntarily, Sit and his partisans were the cause and origin of all that is harmful. Daily their eyes shed upon the world those juices by which plants are made poisonous, as well as malign influences, crime, and madness. Their saliva, the foam which fell from their mouths during their attacks of rage, their sweat, their blood itself, were all no less to be feared. When any drop of it touched the earth, straightway it germinated, and produced something strange and baleful, a serpent, a scorpion, a plant of deadly nightshade or of henbane. But on the other hand, sun was all goodness, and persons or things which it cast forth into life infallibly partook of its benignity. Wine that maketh man glad, the bee who works for him in the flowers secreting wax and honey, the meat and herbs which are his food, the stuffs that clothe him, all useful things which he makes for himself, not only emanated from the solar eye of Horus, but were indeed nothing more than the eye of Horus under different aspects, and in his name they were presented in sacrifice. The devout generally were of opinion that the first Egyptians, the sons and flock of Ra, 
came into the world happy and perfect. By degrees their descendants had fallen from that native felicity into their present state. Some, on the contrary, affirmed that their ancestors were born as so many brutes, unprovided with the most essential arts of gentle life. They knew nothing of articulate speech, and expressed themselves by cries only, like other animals, until the day when thought taught them both speech and writing. These tales sufficed for popular edification. They provided but meagre fare for the intelligence of the learned. The latter did not confine their ambition to the possession of a few incomplete and contradictory details concerning the beginnings of humanity. They wished to know the history of its consecutive developments from the very first, what manner of life had been led by their fathers, what chiefs they had obeyed, and the names or adventures of those chiefs, why part of the nations had left the blessed banks of the Nile and gone to settle in foreign lands, by what stages and in what length of time those who had not emigrated rose out of native barbarism into that degree of culture to which the most ancient monuments bore testimony. No efforts of imagination were needful for the satisfaction of their curiosity. The old substratum of indigenous traditions was rich enough, did they but take the trouble to work it out systematically, and to eliminate its most incongruous elements. The priests of Heliopolis took this work in hand, as they had already taken in hand the same task with regard to the myths referring to the creation, and the Enneads provided them with a ready-made framework. They changed the gods of the Ennead into so many kings, determined with minute accuracy the lengths of their reigns, and compiled their biographies from popular tales. The duality of the feudal gods supplied an admirable expedient for connecting the history of the world with that of chaos. Tumu was identified with Nu, and relegated to the primordial ocean. Ra was retained, and proclaimed the first king of the world. He had not established his rule without difficulty. The children of defeat, beings hostile to order and light, engaged him in fierce battles, nor did he succeed in organizing his kingdom until he had conquered them in nocturnal combat, at Hermopolis, and even at Heliopolis itself. Pierced with wounds, Apope, the serpent, sank into the depths of ocean at the very moment when the new year began. The secondary members of the great Aeneid, together with the sun, formed the first dynasty, which began with the dawn of the first day, and ended at the coming of Horus, the son of Isis. The local schools of theology welcomed this method of writing history as readily as they had welcomed the principle of the Aeneid itself. Some of them retained the Heliopolitan Demiurge, and hastened to associate him with their own. Others completely eliminated him in favor of the feudal divinity, Ammon at Thebes, Thot at Hermopolis, Ptah at Memphis, keeping the rest of the dynasty absolutely unchanged. The gods in no way compromised their prestige by becoming incarnate and descending to earth. Since they were men of finer nature, and their qualities, including that of miracle-working, were human qualities raised to the highest pitch of intensity, it was not considered derogatory to them personally to have watched over the infancy and childhood of primeval man. The raillery in which the Egyptians occasionally indulged with regard to them, the good-humoured and even ridiculous roles ascribed to them in certain legends, do not prove that they were despised, or that zeal for them had cooled. The greater the respect of believers for the objects of their worship, the more easily do they tolerate the taking of such liberties, and the condescension of the members of the Aeneid, far from lowering them in the eyes of generations who came too late to live with them upon familiar terms, only enhanced the love and reverence in which they were held. Nothing shows this better than the history of Ra. His world was ours in the rough, for since Shu was yet non-existence, and Nuit still reposed in the arms of Sibu, earth and sky were but one. 
Nevertheless, in this first attempt at a world, there was vegetable, animal, and human life. Egypt was there, all complete, with her two chains of mountains, her Nile, her cities, the people of her nomes, and the nomes themselves. Then the soil was more generous, the harvests, without the laborer's toil, were higher and more abundant, and when the Egyptians of Pharaonic times wished to mark their admiration of any person or thing, they said that the like had never been known since the time of Ra. It is an illusion common to all peoples, as their insatiable thirst for happiness is never assuaged by the present, they fall back upon the remotest past in search of an age when that supreme felicity which is only known to them as an ideal was actually enjoyed by their ancestors. Ra dwelt in Heliopolis, and the most ancient portion of the temple of the city, that known as the mansion of the prince, Hayat Saru, passed for having been his palace. His court was mainly composed of gods and goddesses, and they as well as he were visible to men. It contained also men who filled minor offices about his person, prepared his food, received the offerings of his subjects, attended to his linen and his household affairs. It is said that the Oriru Mao, the high priest of Ra, the Hong Kistit, his high priestess, and generally speaking all the servants of the temple of Heliopolis, were either directly descended from members of this first household establishment of the god, or had succeeded to their offices in unbroken secession. In the morning he went forth with his divine train, and amid the acclamations of the crowd, entered the bark in which he made his accustomed circuit of the world, returning to his home at the end of twelve hours after the accomplishment of his journey. He visited each province in turn, and in each he tarried for an hour, to settle all disputed matters, as the final judge of appeal. He gave audience to both small and great, he decided their quarrels, and adjudged their lawsuits, he granted investiture of fiefs from the royal domains to those who had deserved them, and allotted or confirmed to every family the income needful for their maintenance. He pitied the sufferings of his people, and did his utmost to alleviate them. He taught to all comers potent formulas against reptiles and beasts of prey, charms to cast out evil spirits, and the best recipes for preventing illness. His incessant bounties left him at length with only one of his talismans, the name given to him by his father and his mother at his birth, which they had revealed to him alone, and which he kept concealed within his bosom, lest some sorcerer should get possession of it, to use for the furtherance of his evil spells. But old age came on, and infirmities followed, the body of Ra grew bent, his mouth trembled, his slaver trickled down to earth, and his saliva dropped upon the ground. Isis, who had hitherto been a mere woman-servant in the household of the pharaoh, conceived the project of stealing his secret from him, that she might possess the world and make herself a goddess by the name of the august god. Force would have been unavailing, all enfeebled as he was by reason of his years, none was strong enough to contend successfully against him. But Isis was a woman more knowing in her malice than millions of men, clever among millions of the gods, equal to millions of spirits, to whom, as unto Ra, nothing was unknown either in heaven or upon earth she contrived a most ingenious stratagem. When man or god was struck down by illness, the only chance of curing him lay in knowing his real name, and thereby adjuring the evil being that tormented him. Isis determined to cast a terrible malady upon Ra, concealing its cause from him, then to offer her services as his nurse, and by means of his sufferings to extract from him the mysterious word indispensable to the success of the exorcism. She gathered up mud impregnated with the divine saliva, and moulded of it a sacred serpent, which she hid in the dust of the road. 
Suddenly bitten as he was setting out upon his daily round, the god cried out aloud. His voice ascended into heaven, and his nine called, What is it? What is it? And his gods, What is the matter? What is the matter? But he can make them no answer. So much did his lips tremble, his limbs shake, and the venom take hold upon his flesh, as the Nile seizeth upon the land which it invadeth. Presently he came to himself, and succeeding in describing his sensations, something painful hath struck me, my heart perceiveth it, yet my two eyes see it not, my hand hath not wrought it, nothing that I have made knoweth it what it is, yet have I never tasted suffering like unto it, and there is no pain that may overpass it. Fire it is not, water it is not, yet is my heart in flames, my flesh trembleth, all my members are full of shiverings born of breaths of magic. Behold, let there be brought unto me children of the gods of beneficent words, who know the power of their mouths, and whose science reacheth into heaven. They came, these children of the gods, all with their books of magic. There came Isis with her sorcery, her mouth full of life-giving breaths, her recipe for the destruction of her pain, her words which pour life into breathless throats, and she said, What is it? What is it, O father of the gods? May it not be that a serpent hath wrought this suffering in thee, that one of thy children hath lifted up his head against thee? Surely he shall be overthrown by beneficent incantations, and I will make him to retreat at the sight of thy rays. On learning the cause of his torment, the sun-god is terrified, and begins to lament anew. I, then, as I went along the ways, travelling through my double land of Egypt and over my mountains, that I might look upon that which I have made, I was bitten by a serpent that I saw not. Fire it is not, water it is not, yet I am colder than water, I burn more than fire, all my members stream with sweat, I tremble, mine eye is not steady, no longer can I discern the sky, drops roll from my face as in the season of summer. Isis proposes her remedy, and cautiously asked him his ineffable name. But he divines her trick, and tries to evade it by the enumeration of his titles. He takes the universe to witness that he is called Kopri in the morning, Ra at noon, Tumu in the evening. The poison did not recede, but steadily advanced, and the great god was not ease. Then Isis said to Ra, Thy name was not spoken in that which thou hast said. Tell it to me, and the poison will depart, for he liveth upon whom a charm is pronounced in his own name. The poison glowed like fire, it was strong as the burning of flame, and the majesty of Ra said, I grant thee leave that thou shouldst search within me, O mother Isis, and that my name pass from my bosom into thy bosom. In truth, the all-powerful name was hidden within the body of the god, and could only be extracted thence by means of a surgical operation, similar to that practised upon a corpse which is about to be mummified. Isis undertook it, carried it through successfully, drove out the poison, and made herself a goddess by virtue of the name. The cunning of a mere woman had deprived Ra of his last talisman. End of section 17. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.